Well, my friends, Dispatches from the Forest has finally arrived at the new location of Dispatches World Headquarters, Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's been a long but eventful journey, and there's some topics from that journey that I'm going to cover eventually, but I don't want to rush it, so I'm going to save those for a later date. In the meantime, you're going to have to forgive me because this episode is going to be a little bit on the short side. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about animals that are so common that we kind of take them for granted. And I've also talked about plenty of critters that get a lot of hate without a really good reason, like spiders and snakes and coyotes. Today, I'm going to continue on that theme a little bit. I want to tell you about a couple of birds that are, well, maybe not hated, but definitely unloved, either because of the way they look or they reproduce. And you know what? Nature is nature. And I don't think we should make judgments based on a human societal standard of beauty or morality. I mean, really, let's face it, humans don't exactly own the moral high ground. We can be plenty nasty in our own right. So who are we to judge? And as it turns out, these birds are super interesting. So let's defend a couple of our unloved feathered friends. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The first unloved bird I want to tell you about has something of an unfortunate name, the common grackle. I mean, seriously, grackle? It sounds like a sound you'd make when you're choking on a piece of meat. But it's not their name that makes them unloved. Grackles don't get a lot of love because they're not brightly colored and they don't sing a pretty song, among other things. Grackles are about the same size as an American robin. Adults have a long, dark bill, pale, yellowish eyes, and common grackles have a relatively long tail, although great-tailed grackles and bow-tailed grackles have an even longer tail. Their feathers appear black, not very exciting, right? But if you look closely, you'll notice purple, green, or blue iridescence on the head and a bronze sheen in the body plumage. Adult females, which are slightly smaller than the males, are usually less iridescent, their tails are shorter, and they're brown with no purple or blue gloss. Grackles are actually very pretty, you just have to look closely. Common grackles are found in open and semi-open areas across North America, east of the Rocky Mountains. Great-tailed grackles range from northwestern Venezuela and western Colombia and Ecuador in the south, up through Central America to Oregon, Idaho, and California in the west, and across to Florida in the east, with vagrants occurring as far north as southern Canada. Now, interestingly, great-tailed grackles originated from the tropical lowlands of Central and South America, but historical evidence shows that the Aztecs introduced the great-tailed grackle from their homeland in the Mexican Gulf Coast to the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan in the Highland Valley of Mexico to use their iridescent feathers for decoration. Though not considered invasive, great-tailed grackles expanded their range by over 5,500% between the years 1880 and 2000, moving north into North America following urban and agricultural corridors. Another reason why grackles are unloved is because their song can be harsh, especially when they're in a flock calling. (laughs) 
And speaking of flocks of grackles, if you are doubting that these birds are unloved, consider this. A flock of grackles is known as a plague. Now, grackles actually have a wide range of vocalizations. Great-tailed grackles' vocalizations have been described as anything from sweet tinkling to rusty gate hinge. Common grackles are sometimes said to sound like a power line buzzing. But that said, grackles can actually mimic the sounds of other birds or even humans, though not as precisely as mockingbirds, which share similar habitats in the southeastern United States. The other problem grackles have when it comes to vocalizations is that they tend to be loud, especially when they're in a group. So they're considered to be pests just based on their volume. Grackles forage on the ground, in shallow water, or in shrubs. They're omnivores. They eat insects, minnows, frogs, eggs, berries, seeds, grain, and even small birds and rodents. They're also well known for gathering at places where messy humans eat, waiting to snatch up a dropped french fry or chicken nugget. They'll rush forward and try to grab it, even snatching food out of the beak of another bird. Even at bird feeders, grackles prefer to eat seed that's fallen on the ground. Grackles have a unique adaptation inside their bill that helps them crack and cut hard nuts or kernels. They have larger muscles in their jaw than other birds in their family, and they use this structure in a sawing motion to score open acorns or dried kernels. Because of their fondness for grain and tendency to congregate in large flocks, and a reputation for being difficult to control, some people consider common grackles to be a threat to crops. Now, in 2019, a study by the National Audubon Society of data from the Christmas bird count indicated that populations of common grackles have declined by 61% from a historic high of over 190 million down to about 73 million. Because of this, common grackles are now classified by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, as near-threatened. Okay, two more cool things to make you appreciate grackles. First, several studies have examined the ability of the common grackle to interpret the Earth's magnetic field, or in this case, the variability of the Earth's magnetic field. Now, how they do this is not well understood, but grackles have been found to be attuned to a dynamic magnetic field to a scientifically significant degree. I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm guessing that it helps them find their way during migration. The last cool thing about grackles, they're one of the bird species known to engage in anting. Anting is a behavior where birds will rub insects, usually ants, hence the name, on their feathers and their skin. Grackles engage in what's called active anting, picking up ants in their bill and rubbing them on their feathers. A bird will place the tip of its wing on the ground and rub the ant from the tip of the wing up. Birds generally use one ant at a time and only rub a feather once with an ant. Now, there's some cases where an ant is used more than once, but never more than three times. I don't know, maybe it's unlucky. Active anting happens very quickly and looks very much like the bird's regular feather maintenance. Active anting can last anywhere from several minutes to half an hour. But what's the point of anting? Well, there's several possible reasons why a bird might engage in anting. Ants, in particular, secrete formic acid, and anting could help make these insects more palatable by removing the distasteful acid. Anting might also supplement the bird's own natural preening oils and help stimulate the bird's salivary glands to help with preening. 
But the most likely explanation is that the formic acid helps prevent microorganisms like bacteria and funguses that can damage or destroy the bird's feathers. And it may or may not deter ticks, mites, and other parasites. The sources I found were kind of conflicting on that point. But still, pretty smart if you ask me. The second unloved bird I want to tell you about is the brown-headed cowbird. Now, like grackles, brown-headed cowbirds are not particularly pretty. A little bit bigger than a sparrow, but smaller than a robin, adult males are iridescent black with a brown head. Adult females are slightly smaller and dull gray with a pale throat and very fine streaking on the underparts. Kind of makes you go, eh. Cowbirds are found throughout the United States, much of Canada, and south into Central America. They live in open or semi-open country and often travel in flocks, sometimes mixed with red-winged blackbirds, particularly in the spring, and bobolinks, particularly in the fall, but they'll also flock with common grackles or European starlings. Cowbirds also forage on the ground, eating primarily seeds and insects. They're often seen following grazing animals like horses and cattle to catch insects that are stirred up by the larger animals, which is how they got the name cowbird. Now, prior to European settlement, brown-headed cowbirds followed bison herds across the prairies. Their population expanded with the clearing of forested areas and the introduction of new grazing animals, like cattle, by the settlers. They're now a common sight at suburban bird feeders. Now, when you spend your life following bison herds across the prairie, it doesn't leave you much time to build a nest and raise chicks. But the brown-headed cowbird solved this problem, and it's this solution that makes them unloved by many backyard bird aficionados. So how do you brood eggs when you're constantly on the move? Well, that's easy. You just find someone else to do it for you. The technical term is brood parasitism, and brown-headed cowbirds are obligate brood parasites, meaning that they've evolved so that this is the only way for them to reproduce. Brown-headed cowbirds lay their eggs in the nests of other birds, particularly those that build cup-like nests. And this, my friends, is why brown-headed cowbirds tend to be vilified. But brood parasitism is really kind of fascinating when you get down to it. Brown-headed cowbird females can lay up to 36 eggs in a season, and cowbird eggs have been documented in the nests of at least 220 host species, from hummingbirds to raptors. Now, if a cowbird egg is accepted by the host parent, and there's no guarantee that it will be, the young cowbird will be fed by the host parents, often at the expense of their own young, because the cowbird chick tends to hatch sooner and can be bigger and more aggressive than the host's own young. But get this, song sparrow nestings in a parasitized nest will alter their begging calls in frequency and amplitude so that they resemble the cowbird nestling and these sparrow nestlings tend to be fed equally often compared to nestlings in an unparasitized nest. And even if a host accepts the cowbird egg, it doesn't always work out for the cowbirds. American redstart nests that are parasitized by cowbirds were found to have a higher rate of predation, probably due in part to the loud begging calls of the cowbird nestling calling attention to the nest, but also partly due to the fact that nests that are likely to be parasitized are also more likely to be located where they can be found by predators. Some host species, like house finches and goldfinches, feed their young a 100% vegetarian diet, and this diet is unsuitable for cowbird chicks, and few survive to fledge if left in a finch nest. 
So while cowbird eggs have been documented in 220 host species nests, the number of bird species that have actually raised cowbird chicks to adulthood is just over 140. Blue-gray gnatcatchers will just abandon their nest completely, along with their own eggs, if they find a cowbird egg. The American yellow warbler buries the foreign egg under nest material, where it dies. The brown thrasher typically ejects the cowbird egg physically from the nest. And experiments with gray catbirds, a known cowbird host, have shown that this species will reject cowbird eggs more than 95% of the time. But there's still a risk for the host parents and their own offspring if they reject the cowbird egg. And this is something that I find both brutal and kind of amusing at the same time. Brown-headed cowbirds don't just leave an egg and then forget about it. They will periodically check on their eggs and young after they've deposited them. Removal of the cowbird egg can trigger a retaliatory reaction known as mafia behavior. According to one study, when a cowbird egg was removed, the cowbird returned to ransack the nest of the host species 56% of the time. In addition, the cowbird often destroys the host nest completely, which forces the host to build a new nest. The cowbird then lays another egg in the new host nest 85% of the time. In the words of Don Corleone, you can do anything, but never go against the family. I've had well-meaning backyard birders tell me that they remove cowbird eggs from songbird nests in their yards to protect those songbirds. But that's not only illegal, cowbirds are protected under the Federal Migratory Bird Act, but it may, in fact, lead to the nest being destroyed in a counterattack. Sometimes you just have to let nature take its course, even if you don't like it. Okay, one more interesting thing about brown-headed cowbirds. You might be wondering, if a cowbird is raised by host parents, how does it know it's a cowbird? Well, that's a good question. Cowbirds aren't exposed to species-typical visual and auditory information like other birds, and yet they still, generally, develop the typical singing, social, and breeding behaviors of their own species. The reason is because cowbird brains are wired to respond to the vocalizations of other cowbirds, which lets young cowbirds find and join a flock of their own species. These vocalizations are consistent across all cowbird populations and act as a sort of species recognition password. If a young cowbird is not exposed to these password vocalizations by a certain age, it will mistakenly imprint on the host species. And on that note, friends, we'll wrap up this admittedly brief episode. Thank you for listening. Make sure to click on those like and follow or subscribe buttons. It's free and it helps me out a lot. If you want to support future episodes of the podcast, here's how you can do that. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your barber or your therapist or mechanic or bail bondsman or lawyer or whoever to check out the podcast for themselves. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do it through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and also how you can get in contact with me if you have a question, a comment, or even a suggestion for a future episode. Go get some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. The Dispatches from the Forest merch store can be found at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. There's all kinds of stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something you like. 
For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. You can do anything, but never go against the podcast.